And the next one is Haunt, which has a very interesting uh, intro. Actually, it's an interesting story behind the intro as well. We, we recorded the track with Andy Richards, and then um, Julian Mendelssohn, um, we got to remix it. And we put the tape on, and we were doing something or other, and he accidentally recorded over all the drums in the beginning. And we, he wiped the and um, uh, actually, fortunately, we realised that we were winding so we the shot track, mm -hmm. and um, so we stopped it quickly, and then we went back and we, we thought, oh, we've wiped it, you know, but it was only the drums that were missing, so, so, like that is what, so that's why the introduction starts with no drums, <laughs> but it's really good that it doesn't know. <laughs> This is my 80sography. Come over here. Part two of the interview commences now. 1985. Okay, 85, another icon to work with, uh, Kate Bush, The Hands of Love, the title track, A Mother Stands for Comfort. Well, I did loads of tracks. I did one whole side on that album. Oh, did you really? Because you only credited, I think, on two. No, I did. Uh, I did. I was going through my head now. I'm useless with sound uh, songs. Um, it's like the song, the song suite on um, side two, isn't it? I didn't do tw side two. No, it's, you did side one with the songs yes. with hands of love, running up that hill, cloud busting, the big sky. I didn't do running up that hill, but I did the twelve into running up that hill. So did you work on cloud busting? I did cloud busting, definitely. And that was mixing. Mixing, yeah, it was only mixing with her. Oh, I did some a couple of vocals, I think, with her. Okay, so what what condition were the songs in when you started to mix it? Were they was that pretty... well? They were well. It was they had uh, Del Palmer, her boyfriend at the time, was the engineer. He wasn't an engineer, mm -hmm. but he is. He was then. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. He wasn't formally trained as an engineer in the studio. I don't think, but he'd done a really good job. They had a, an old uh, Soundcraft desk with no automation and a Soundcraft tape recorder, I think, which was a bit manky. And they'd been working on it so long, a lot of the oxide on the tape had worn off. It was it was pretty hard work. There was a lot of hiss. A Soundcraft desk, not the greatest sounding desk in the world. And the fact that they'd been on it for a, so long and the tape was worn out, it was bloody hard work. And the thing with Kate was that she, you were just a part of the machinery. You were not to do anything creative. So she you told you what to do, basically, and you just... Told me exactly what to the, do. The technical yeah. person to realise her ideas. Yes, yes. It was bloody hard work. But luckily I was up to it. So is that hard work in the, the Trevor Horn sense of being very exacting, let's do it again and again and again, that kind of thing? Uh, not, not again and again and again. 
just that she knew exactly what she wanted. Uh, we had to do a lot of it in edits. You had to do a section because there was no automation on the desk, so you had to do it all manually. So we'd do the first verse, get all that right, then we'd do the second verse and then mix the second verse and do, chop that on. And, you know, it was very time-consuming. Uh, she was very, very particular, let's say, but a gen- another genius in the Nick Kershaw line of things. Hey, don't, don't get Kate Bush and Nick Kershaw mentioned together. Both genii. Yeah. Both genii, mate. So I'd expect yeah. you to say that about Kate Bush. I think it was surprised people that he said that about Nick Kershaw, so that's quite interesting. Oh, Nick's, Nick's amazing, mate. You've got to get into them. Get into those two albums I've told you about. They are amazing. They I come will... on in the car, and I think, fuck me, this guy's so good. His okay, name me what name one track from either of those albums that people should investigate immediately as, as an example. I don't know what tracks are. Well, let me have a look. Yeah, just recommend one track. There's one rock, there's one big rock track that's not a rock track. Oh, this is it. What a great track. Sorry, I'll cut the interview for a moment. I just want to hear this. Okay, what's it called? No Braves. Uh, your brave face. Your brave face. Not my brave face. Your brave face. You've got to get into it because they're as good as, if not better, than these two early pop albums. They're not pop albums. This is him doing what he wanted to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in in his maturity. Yeah. So good. Ask Lipson. He feels the same way. Okay. All right. Excellent. It'll uh, open up a whole new world for you, mate. Even though yeah. it's the 2000s. Thank you. Oh, I, I can't. A nosebleed. I get a nosebleed. Oh, you'll, you'll do it. You'll do it. Just force yourself. It doesn't exist. You know, I just got to tell you about Kate. She lived in West Wickham, which is on right on the east, southeast end of London. She's quite a long drive from, I think I was in Wandsworth at the time or Earlsfield, I was in Earlsfield. You know, I'd leave, I'd get there about 11 o'clock and we'd work away and we'd work away. We'd work away, you know, it was hard work. She's down the back just telling me what to do and and uh, Dell would come in occasionally, say, oh, that sounds really good and, you know, don't forget that bit. And Anyway, two nights in, we're doing, I don't know which mix we were doing, I'm absolutely exhausted. And it's about one o'clock in the morning and it's pissing down with rain. It's absolutely freezing outside. I get out into the car and I've got the shakes. I'm like this. I'm thinking, fuck, I can't. I don't think I can drive home. You know, this is terrible. I can't actually ask Kate if I can stay the night, can I? You know, it would be really embarrassing. Anyway, I'm just thinking, how am I going to get home? You know, I'm outside of the house. I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Anyway, I'm... I got better and I was okay and I managed to drive home, which I probably shouldn't have. But I was exhausted and I so cold I was shaking, you know. Never forget that. Wow. Things you have to go through, eh? 
things you have to go through for geniuses. There's so much here to cover. It's amazing. Oh, come on, man. Quick. Yeah, let's go through it. Um, I've got plenty of time. Don't worry. Yeah, excellent. Good to know. So uh, how to be a zillionaire. You did some mixing on that as well. And you were, I think, a second engineer on that? Yeah. What was his game? Martin. 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 So no, big, what was the engineer's name? Oh, the engineer. Oh, God, That's a question. Martin, Martin Pike or Martin Quick? Uh, Chief Martin Webster. Martin Webster, see, I wasn't far off. Yeah. I think he was one of the, in that situation where he just had enough and couldn't face mixing it because he, you know, he'd heard it too much, so they got yeah. me to mix it. So yeah. it a, you get bringing a pair of fresh ears to have a more... Fresh color. ears, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. That was good fun. Being Near Me was a huge hit in America. It was a top ten hit in America. Would you have been aware of this? Was it really? Was it really? Yeah, yeah, it was huge in America. Were you aware of that at the time? No, no. I didn't no. know that. No? No, I didn't know that. I thought it was just sort of an average album that sort of did okay. But is that one track that stood out? It's like, that's, that's the classic track. Be near me, be near me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ever had the feeling Almost broke into Said that you were leaving Like you do you do ooh, ooh. All my dreams came true last night All my hopes and fears All my dreams came true once more In tears, in tears Be near me, be near Yeah, that, that were great to work with, Martin and what's his name? Mark. Mark, yeah, great guys. Great yeah, you guys. were there a few times after that as well. As yeah, then I did the one after that, which was the one with Smokey. Yeah, well, when Smokey Sings. Yeah. That was a, to me, that was a better album. That was a great okay. album. Okay. Yeah. You also worked on the first time with Level 42 on World Machine. That was a fantastic part of my life. Still best friends. Yeah, I was just spoken to us on the phone to uh, on the WhatsApp to Wally Battery just the other day. Funnily okay, enough. in contact. Yeah, lovely guy, just such a cool guy. I rang uh, Mike Lindup last night to have a yap, but it was 
he got back to me, it was too late. And I said, I, I, I had to text him and say, no, I've got a very important interview. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Mick, Michael Lindup has stood up for me. That's great. <laughs> when you claim to fame he's a lovely lovely guy Mike he seems like a really nice guy yeah. he's such a nice bloke we've been such good friends you know right since the beginning because we live pretty close to each other in Wimbledon so we okay. and we love our, love our mo- motor cars so that's our common thread and Mark you know I saw Mark a few years ago when I came back nothing changed there we're both a bit fuller in the face and a bit overweight <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just like, you know, they're just people that, you know, it's just, you've seen them not for 20 years and it's just like you've, you've seen them yesterday. Yeah, we had a great time with those, with those guys. I mean, I mean, an absolute amazing thing to work with a band who had no trouble playing absolutely anything that they wanted to play. There are no technical problems in playing, you know. They could play everything. Was that rare then? Would there always be one element? As- they were probably the best of a lot for me. Yeah. In, in musical excellence, yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Something about you, the thing about that is, is the very first song I ever heard on CD. And it sounds like... Oh, music. is it? Yeah, because my dad brought him a CD player and he put this track on and it, the, the album version where it goes into the intro... So it was the single yeah. bit into the, 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 the vocal bits. It just sounded amazing on CD. It was like it's like going from you know black and white to Technicolor. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a perfect yeah. track to start listening to on CD. I have to have a listen to it again. I've yeah, sort of... but the question is, why was it not the opening track on the album? Because it's such a brilliant intro. It starts up with. I don't we well, wouldn't ever have any say as an engineer and later as a producer on the track. I think we did, but Mark, Mark and Phil used to argue about it. They spent a lot of time getting annoyed with each other. I don't know. I can't remember how that all came about. I do tell. Well, I want to tell you a quick little story though. We were working at Maison Rouge, just down the road from Chelsea uh, Football Club in Fulham Road. We're doing the album in Studio Two, I think, and. Uh, while we were there, oh, here we go, I can't remember their bloody name again. Park Life, who did Park Life? Blur. Blur were in the other studio and uh, there was a couple of, there was a week or two when they had to come in and use our studio for some reason or not. I don't know why. Anyway, at the end of our session, we'd strip everything down, take all our marks off the desk, of, you know, what instrument was the where and all that. And one day on the SSL desk, have you ever seen an SSL desk, mixing uh, desk? Not, I've seen pictures of them. I haven't actually seen them in the film. Yeah, well, there, there's a solo button where you solo an instrument and a, and a cut button where you cut that instrument, you know, of each track. Yeah. What we did is we swapped all the solo and cut <laughs> How childish can you be, honestly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a little note on the desk the next morning saying, you bastards. <laughs> I never forget that. Never got a chance to work with Blur after that, obviously. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you burned well, I blamed it on Mark, actually. It was actually Mark's idea. Uh, okay. I right. just carried it out. 
orders. <laughs> Which was the first um, project you were actual producer on? Was it Machinations? Was that the first yeah. album you produced? Oh no, I'd been down here. I've been down here in '82. Jill said, "Look, why don't you go down to Australia and do some work for Mushroom Records?" And I, my contact there wasn't as much Michael Gadinsky, but it was Gary Ashley. And I did a few bands. Me and Jimbo did three or four bands together. Jimbo was the engineer at the studio. So yeah, I did a few, a couple of little bands here, and then I went up to Sydney and did that Machination Sings uh, single really quickly. Uh, so I had to do that was sort of practice producing, you know, and then I think Machinations would have been the f- oh no, hang on, no, there's another one. There was one in between that I did at Martin Russian Studio out in Goring. Genesis was the name of the genetic, no, was it called Genetic Studios? Martin Russian, find the name of his studio. Come on, Martin. Uh, no, there was another really great band, Scottish band, Genetic Studios, yeah. Genetic, Martin Russian. Yeah. Now, what was the name of this band? I did a 12-inch of Psychedelic Furs yeah. uh, track there, which was an amazing track, another amazing track. Is that Heartbeat? Heartbeat, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I was really proud of that, really proud of that. Comes on in the car, and I think, fuck me, I did a good job on that. (laughs) And I could really enjoy it. You know, when I'd done it, I couldn't enjoy it. What was the name of the band? They were Scottish. Uh, I'll just look through my music list. Might come to me. They were really good. What year was this talking about? 83, 84. Endgames. There you go. Endgames was a Scottish band. Endgames. Endgames. I know I did two or three tracks with them. So good. And was that an album or just a single? I think we did three or four tracks. 
Okay. And I remember a record company lady ringing up and saying, wow, that's fucking amazing. It was quite tricky to do that one because they had a couple of interesting bar changes. Yes. I have to say I did a really good job on it. Of course, I didn't think so at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So was that jump from engineer to producer, was it a big jump or was it a natural no. progression? No, because it's just really when you're an engineer, you're sort of a producer. But the buck stops with the producer, right? You're the, you're the, the high authority in terms of the final yeah. word. Yeah, but, you know, I used to just engineer and just guide the artist. I didn't maybe help them with a, a arrangement thing or tell them they're not playing it right. Basically what I did as an engineer. 1986. Okay, let's go on to 1986. And, um, yes. Working with Paul McCartney for the first time. Um, I you did worked, a couple of 12 inches, didn't I? Yeah, for, for tracks that weren't actually singles. What was your, it's, it's Not True and Tough on a Tightrope, two songs I absolutely love. They're really good tracks, actually, aren't they? I, I love that album. I've interviewed Hugh Padgham, who produced it, who, who doesn't like the album, didn't have a great experience. Speaking of Gary... Why Mac, didn't he have a good, great experience? Uh, he didn't particularly like the songs he was working on. He didn't think much of them. Oh. Also, he didn't particularly get on with Paul. Oh, Paul can be quite difficult, I think. Yeah, there's a famous anecdote he's often told, he said in the interview as well, that, that he was just questioning a guitar solo or something and Paul turned around and said how many number one singles have you written kind of thing oh yeah well then Paul had a bit of a the ego did come out occasionally did you have any of those kind of moments with him oh there were a couple of times when Linda when we'd come in in the morning and Linda would say just be careful this morning he's got out the wrong side of bed so (laughs) when he got out in general he he was a really nice bloke yeah yeah. and you know um a few years ago, he did a gig out here, and uh, I took. Oh, I've just got to tell you this story, and I might tear up. Oh, okay, good. Um, my, uh, I said, oh, I said to my wife, should we take Ruby, the daughter, to the, the gig? And she said, oh, Ruby would love to see it because I get free tickets and uh, through Wix, the keyboard player. Yes, yes, you've got a long association. No, Wick, yeah, yeah, Paul Wickham. Yeah, yeah, he was on the Nick Kershaw album and all that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, and then I suddenly thought, we've got this friend, uh, Laura, who's Ruby's best friend, who's had a really tough life with divorces and untogether mothers and just a lovely girl, some sort of a father figure to her. I thought, I should take, I should take Laura. She's never been to a gig in her life. You know, never been to a gig, never had anything like this. I'll get another ticket. So I rang with, she got a ticket. So we turn, turn up at 6 o'clock at the gig and uh, we're waiting in the special waiting room for guests and there was only only us and another guy called Jimmy Jimmy McGeechee, who's a Scottish bloke who played the drums on Mulliver Kintyre, <laughs> who I'm now really good friends with. We met him and just amazing, isn't it? So Wick says, come on, we're going up to St Paul now in the dressing room. We go in, Paul just rushes towards me and gives me a massive hug and... Then he hugs the girls and he's so nice to the girls and I'm going, the tears are coming out of my eyes. It was just a moment of just amazingness because here's this girl who's had not a life, really, meeting one of the most famous people in the world and he's being lovely to her, you know. It was just, it was an amazing, see, I've got tears now. Yeah. It was just an amazing moment and he was 
He's lost all the ego thing, which could have been, you know, could be difficult sometimes. Just a lovely, lovely guy. And I, I will never forget that. Laura's never forgotten it. Because it was a big, special moment in her life, you know? He seems to have that level of success work, but he's aware that when he meets people, it's not in an egotistical way, but he knows it's going to be a highlight of their day, week, month, year. Yeah. He's aware yeah. of that. He seems to be aware of that. Yeah. Not in a big-headed way, but in a, like, I'm going to recognise how important this is to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's dead, dead right. And he yeah. really turned it on for Ruby and Laura. Got them T-shirts and bags and this and sweatshirts and this and that. And, yeah, you have this and oh, yeah. You know, it was just that's, brilliant. That's really And lovely. then the gig. The gig, oh, my God. The gig was mind-blowing. The guy was 75 when he did this. Uh, 73 or 75? What year was this? 2019 or I think it was 2019 or... 70s, yeah, 77. Yeah. 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 It was yeah. just yeah. amazing. He didn't put a note wrong. You know, his voice was still good. And he famously never drinks water during a gig. He plays for like nearly three hours and never takes that. any water. Didn't notice that. Yeah. Wixie was still good. I did congratulate Wix at the end of it. I said, I oh, can still play then. Because <laughs> <laughs> Paul can't do everything live, can he? He can the studio, but he can't do it all live. Yeah, yeah. But back to anyway. those two mixes. Do you know why you did those mixes? Because like I said, they were they, were, they ended up being B-sides. They weren't even um, singles. Uh, I don't know. I was, the, I was the man to go to for an extended mix, I think. I, I don't know where it came from. And was he very on hand? I don't even know whether Paul knew I was doing them, to be true. As I say, was he there with you doing the mix? No, 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 he wasn't there. Would you get notes on it in terms of, like, you do a version and he... No, no. So he wasn't that... I spoke to Gary, because Gary did um, a mix for him at the same time, and he was kind of there with him, and he said it wasn't, again, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. Yeah, Gary, some... No, anyway. No, go on, finish that thought. No, I'm not going to go any further. Oh, you Gary, sometimes, Gary, even though I was not very diplomatic, <laughs> I mean, the first time I met Nick Kershaw, he walked in the studio first day, and I said, oh, Pete, he's even shorter than me. <laughs> and of course, Nick took total, thought I was being serious and took it very personally. Took Peter Collins aside and said, I can't work with that guy. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what Paul would have been like in those days. It might have been really difficult. But, um, you know, once I realised that I knew what I was doing, I sort of, I could put up with difficult people. When I was learning in the late, in the 79, 80 and 81 at Psalm, I couldn't handle dealing with difficult people. It was a nightmare. Trevor accepted, of course. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether Gary was quite as, as good at handling that sort of stuff. So he'd be quite direct. He'd say, I don't like that. Or... Yeah, Gary was not direct. He wasn't direct. No, I was direct, but I, I got away with it for some reason. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, do you remember doing those remixes? I mean, if you hear them now... Yeah. Yeah, it, I've, still, I've got them. Hang on, uh, Paul. It's McCartney. not true. It's got. It's, uh, you compare it to the. It's the... not true. 
it's got, it sounds like it's got the old gated reverb, Hugh Padgham's gated yeah. reverb on the drums. No, excuse me, that wasn't Hugh Padgham's. Oh, God, what? It was ours. Explain no, But we used to do it too, you know. Okay, so he just, he just popularised it. <laughs> <laughs> a sense of writ. Yeah. But was that the, the the reason for doing it? Because it was like a Hugh Patchen production. I'm gonna do that sound. I didn't even know it was Hugh Patchen. Oh, okay, you didn't know. Okay. Oh, I don't know whether it might have said it on the bot on the tape box. I don't know. So when you're doing a remix like that, the producer's usually not a part party to it, not a part of it at all. Usually. No, apart from if it's the Petrop Boys or Go West. Right. So the artist, if they're the producers. Yeah. Normally, I just get sense stuff. You know, what's the girl, the lady out of ABBA called, the blondie? Uh, Agneta. Uh, Agneta Fel- Felskog. Yeah. Well, I got sent this track called The Last Time uh, to do a 12-inch of, and I thought, oh, this is really good. I wonder who this lady is. I didn't know who Agneta Felskog was. I didn't even know it was the lady from ABBA until about 20 years later. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did quite a good 12-inch on that, too. You don't know the voice? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I do now. I realised. Oh, yeah, of course, it's her. <laughs> wow. amazing what do you think of the new ABBA songs oh I heard a couple on the radio no really not great no not convinced have you heard it yeah they're, they're okay there's one that everyone's raving about that I think is okay I've actually preferred the ballad weirdly enough right I haven't listened the to cheesy it. ballad but yeah they were brilliant though weren't they, oh, they, they absolutely the songwriting was just amazing really the production yeah just. A brilliant sounding record. It's like something like yeah. Summer Night City never gets talked about. It's just a fantastic track. Yeah. All their tracks were fantastic. Yeah. Well, apart from the one that mentions King Kong, that's a bit crap. <laughs> know that one so talking about the Petrol boys so oh, no i didn't I, didn't i do suburbia first. that's 86 oh is it right yeah yeah so we're there so uh yeah suburbia the full horror version so you, you're there to do a basically a re-recording for the single of suburbia no it was a remix wasn't it i think i didn't record it well you got a production credit so yeah that's jill making sure i got a production credit oh, okay right <laughs> So the full horror, the, the nine-minute, 12-inch version, did you basically do that and edit that down to a single, or did you create a single and then create the 12-inch mix off the back of can't that? Remember. Okay. can't remember. Okay. I think it was... It's such a magnificent track. How do you... You don't remember? Do you remember actually doing it? Do you remember anything about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it. I remember the dogs and the, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I do remember doing it. It was great. We, we had a great time, me and the 
this, but he's in the studio. We were really at a really great time. It was, it was great fun working with that. Really great. She says they're too old for toys Stood by the bus stop With a felt pen In this suburban hell And in the distance A police car to break the suburban tell you that uh, I didn't want to do the Pet Shop Boys. When you were off of Suburbia? Yeah. I said, oh, I, I don't know whether I want to do the Pet Shop Boys. Why? And Jill said, no, you're going to do them. Why didn't you're you want best. to do them? I don't know. I just, I couldn't see it. You know, I couldn't see the song. Okay, she said, no, you've got to do it because it's right up your street and you'll do a good job on it. So I said, oh, all right then. So you listened Sorry. to the album version and you, did, you weren't that impressed? Is that what you're saying? I think I'd heard a demo of it or something and I thought, oh, is this me? And I was never like that. I never didn't want to do stuff because it wasn't my kind of stuff. Yeah. Because I was a professional, you know. I just did stuff because people wanted me to do my thing on it. Anyway, she forced me into it and that was a good thing. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> That's the understatement in a century. Pretty good. You consider eighty-seven, which is what the uh, just the two number one singles and the number two. And the, yeah. So, um, did you? I see did actually show? have three number sing- three singles in nineteen eighty-four. I had when the sun goes down on me, Nick yeah. Kershaw, yeah, relax, and two tribes, all one, two, and three. Was that in Aust- Australia or in? Oh, in the, in the UK. Okay, really? I remember Jill sent me a, uh, sent me a, uh, a picture of it. Oh, no, she sent me a... Well, how would she have done that in 1983? Didn't have text, did we? She That's rang me up and said, look, you've got a one, two, and a three. Okay, so that would have been 84 then, if it was two tribes. Yeah, it would have been 84. I've actually cool. got the Music Week charts here somewhere. I kept it. Confirmation Corner. Julian is right. He had the top three. 24th June, 1984. Same birthday as my dad. Not the same year, obviously, because he's really old. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Showing off. But 87 is no, pretty good as well, to be fair, isn't yeah. it? And the side one. 
Hey, Brian, 80sography is really good, isn't it? It sure is, Sarah. I love learning more about the music of the 80s. Yeah, we both like doing that so much, we started our own podcast about it. It's called the Permanent Record Podcast. Why don't you tell us more about it, Sarah? We select albums from the 80s that are important to us, and we cover the making of the record, chart history, and every track. Then we give a final review and rank the album on a scale of 1 to 100 record adapters. We've covered artists like Depeche, Erasure, Hojo, AHA, Tears for Fears, and the Pet Shop Boys, just to name a few. Also, we've interviewed classic acts like Men Without Hats and Information Society, along with great 80s-influenced modern bands. So how much would you pay for an awesome show like this, Sarah? Uh, nothing. It's a podcast. You can just get it for free in your podcast app of choice. That's true. So it's a sin. Stephen Haig wasn't that keen on it, and you produced it, and then he did a mix of it. Yeah. No, no, no. I did half the album. Yeah. Let me just see. And he, produced, I did he five, five of the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'd done Suburbia mainly, I think. Just looking at the list. Yeah, I did half the album. I yeah. don't think there was, I think maybe because Stephen had, was busy doing something else. I don't think it was his choice not to do it. Oh, here we go. I did One More Chance, Shopping, Rent, Hip Music, Couldn't Happen Here, It's a Sin. Did I do I Want to Wake Up? No, you didn't do it. It Couldn't Happen Here. That was Petrol Boys and David Jacob. Yeah, I did four or five tracks. You did I five think. tracks and then you mixed yeah. What Have I Done to Deserve This? Yes, and, because and he part, could, that's another part. one. That's another one where he couldn't quite get the mix going right and I couldn't get the mix of It's a Sin. Yes. I thought we'd got it and I was going away because I was absolutely fucked. I was right. completely fucked and I had to go away. So I came down to Melbourne and had six, eight weeks off, did a me- epic um, outback trip, four-wheel drive trip. I got completely chilled and relaxed. When I came back, uh, Neil said, oh, I got uh, – I got what's his name to do a. I got Stephen to do a, a mix of. Uh, it's a sin. I said, oh yeah, that's all right. You know, I had to listen to it. It was brilliant, and he'd done a couple of edits in it, which were even more brilliant, which I would never have thought of. And then Neil said, oh look, we, we're having a bit of trouble getting this mix of Dusty's record going. Do you want to have a go? I said yes. How are we going to work out the points on that? So we swapped points. So Stephen had the points on. It's a sin. And I had the points on what have I had to deserve us, even though the production was the opposite way around, if you know right. what I mean. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who got the better deal then in terms of revenue then for those two? I imagine both. Oh, I think they were both big hits, weren't they? Maybe yeah. it's a sim slightly bigger. I don't know. I think it's the same as big in the UK. I think what have I done to deserve this is bigger in the US. I think I, I think actually I did the 12-inch of it's a sim, so... I would have got a bit back for, you know, extra. Anyway, I don't know. So is it a case you get some, you, you did the mix on his production, he did the mix on your production because you're like just too close to it. And again, it's that other pair of ears just to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly like, exactly what happened with Lippo and um, Relax. Yes. So, yeah. so when you mentioned the edits that Stephen Haig did on It's a Sin, what what were they exactly? That I think he took a, bar, a, a half a bar out uh, halfway through the first verse. It's like a little turnaround. Okay. Do I have to pay it, play it to remember it? So it's a sim with number nine in America and what I don't deserve this was number two in America. They're both big hits. I haven't heard this for a long time.
A lot of this is Andy Richards. Yeah. The idea is this to be as epic as possible and as over the top and just... Well, I'll tell you where it all came from. I'll just check this yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, go for it. That bit there. Here we go. I think he took half a bar out of there. It was very clever. Right. Anyway, you know what I was listening to when just before I did this this particular track? It wasn't Wild World by Cat Stevens, was it? Oh, I love Wild. I love Cat Stevens. Yeah. And it's a bit similar, actually, isn't it? Well, they took Jonathan King to court, didn't they? Because he accused them of plagiarism. That's right, yeah. They proved in court that um, it wasn't. No, I've been, in the production side of it and that way it sounded, I've been listening to ZZ Top. Oh, my God. Which track? Yeah. I was obsessed <laughs> by ZZ Top. <laughs> Give me all your loving, all your hearts and kisses to love. Give me all your loving, don't let up until we leave. Yeah, very funny. Wow, that's an influence. Okay, I didn't hear that. Any particular track? No, I just, funnily enough, there was one album and I cannot find it anywhere. I don't think it's available anymore. I love that ZZ Top album. I can't find it anywhere. I've looked for it. Anyway, no. And and do you remember what you did with the mix on What Have I Done to Deserve This? I just mixed it just like I did with Relax. I don't know. Yeah. didn't take very long. didn't take very long at all. Okay. So one more chance. How's that going? to the album. Okay. Hang on, let me just find it. I don't know if it was um, in one of the booklets for one of the um, special editions of the albums, but Neil Tennant made the point that they had three consecutive albums that started with a 12-inch mix, which was um, actually introspective and um, behaviour. They all started... Right, I'm, just, I'm not hearing it, sorry. There's a 12-inch mix that starts the album. It's an incredibly kind of rare thing to do, and they did it three times in a row. <laughs> Oh, Christ, I haven't this for years. Why not? It's a brilliant drag. It's a 12 inch mix. You started the album with a 12 inch mix. Is that what we did? Yeah, because on, on the bonus disc, there's the four minute single of the mix that was created. And then the 12 inch mix was done. It was like, oh, let's, put, let's start the album. It's a great, it's a great opener. I remember that. Oh, I'll have to have a listen to that one day. I'll have to put it on in the car. So you mixed heart as well. Andy Richards produced yeah. that. Yeah. So so when you're making, I mean, is it obvious what the singles are going to be when you're making the album? Were they actually designed as singles? Like it's a sin, that's just going to be the single. It was just it's a track you're doing for the new album, and then at some point it becomes a single. Yeah, you normally wait. Sometimes you know it's going to be a single. Sometimes you wait till the end and you think, oh, that one's a single. Every time I see you. It's not, it's different a lot of the time. 
Uh, he probably so. knew that It's a Sin was going to be a single. Yeah. Uh, there's John Powers at you, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, okay, later in that year, of course, you had the Christmas number one with Always On My Mind. Oh, yeah, that was quick too. That was just an afternoon mix. So there was a demo there and you basically just mixed that, did you, or did you? Yeah, we, yeah they came in with the demo. They'd done some little studio. And did we actually fix anything or add anything or take something out? I can't remember. Finished version. That was finished right. version doesn't it sound. It sounds a lot different to the demo. It just sounds. It's Have just, you heard the demo? Yeah, yeah. It just got. It's got way more oomph to it. It's just. Yeah. Again, it's that black and white Technicolor thing. The demo is it on the internet? The demo. Yeah, it should be because it was. It was on a bonus disc for the um, actually demo. Demo version remaster. That is. That's my mix, isn't it? I, don't know, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> no, it just sounds like a record to me. Maybe mine was a bit better. I don't know. Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should. Maybe I didn't love you quite as often as I could. Little things I should have said done. Again, when it was released, did you think this is going to be a massive smash? Was it a surprise no. when it was number one? No. No. I thought it was just a track they thought they'd just do for a bit of fun. They probably thought that too. Yeah. There was no, like, oh, we're going to make a Christmas number one. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was I admit, I'll, I'll, I'll not forget, uh, I was wondering, we had a Christmas party at, in the big studio at Psalm that year. And uh, Brian May was walking. I was quite friendly with Brian May. He was a lovely bloke. He's doing his wife's album. What was her name? Anita Dobson. That's right. He was doing an album with her and he was always in the studio. Lovely, lovely, lovely bloke. And we're at the Christmas party. He walked up and he said, nice one. You've done okay. (laughs) High praise. Yeah. (laughs) He was a nice bloke. Also in 87, oh God, he didn't mean that. This is all in one year. It's amazing, really. Uh, as well as When Smokey Sings, ABC, you know, top 10 hit in America. Yeah. Um, remixing yeah. Need You Tonight for NXS. And yes, then- that was an interesting one. They wanted me to do a 12-inch. And the, the, the order was from then that I was not allowed to add any other instruments, which I never really did anyway. Right. They said, you can only use what's on that tape. Okay. Yeah. That's a great 12 inch actually, it's really good. It is, I was quite proud of that. Because there's not actually a lot on the track, really. it's quite a sparse song, isn't it? 
And yeah, it was it was in typical Chris Thomas fashion, a little bit disorganised on the on the multi track. Okay, also in '87, still in '87, you worked again with Level Forty Two and Running in the Family. It's probably my favourite Forty yes. Two album. It's a really good album. You got a, a backing vocals credit on Sleepwalkers. Oh, do I? Yeah, do you remember doing. I vaguely that? remember that. God knows what I did. Would that be an additional fee? I remember asking Hugh Padgham about that because him and Steve Lillywhite did the whistling on Games Without Frontiers, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> I got, they got an extra fee for that, so they try to get whistling into every song. Uh, I, I forgot to mention it to Jill, and you know, if I'd mentioned it to Jill, I probably would have got a share of the publishing. Oh man, yeah, you missed out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't care really about all that, but Jill would have. Yeah, she'd have would have been right onto it. You know, <laughs> she would have to get anything, every possible bit she could. So it was it was after the album, I think after the tour, the two Gould brothers left the band. Did you sense there was... Um... There was always a bit of strife between Phil and Mark. Oh. Mark's very forthright and up, up front, and Phil's very thoughtful and probably quite sensitive. As a unit, as a drum and bass unit, boy, oh, boy, the best. You know, I went to Mike Lindup's, uh, we did the third album in France with, um, what's his name? Can't remember his name. Friends with him. I'm hopeless with names. Um, looking, I'm a friend with him on Facebook, for fuck's sake. Uh, are we looking at producers here? Drummer, but he's actually a... Oh, Gary Husband. Dad. Gary Husband. Gary, yeah, yeah, he's a lovely guy. Gary, yeah. It was not quite the same with Gary and Mark as bass and drums. Still amazing, but the combination of Phil and Gary, uh, Phil and Mark, magic. Yeah. I went to um, Mike's wedding and they played for the first time together for many years. That would have been 2000. That would have been years and years since they played together. And it was just, oh, my God, unbelievable. And I keep telling them both the same thing. Such a pity that, you know, you just can't get on with each other. There's more Phil than Mark. Mark's as hard as nails. Right. Uh, Phil, they just don't hit it off, you know. Mark winds Phil up the wrong way because he's very, you know, I want to do this and that's what we're going to, you know. But what a magic combination they are as a drum and bass. Fucking amazing. I mean, I could sit and listen to it, just them by themselves. The musical connection between them is completely unusual. Right, okay. That's interesting. So was was the kind of, um, you know, tension's the right word, but between the two of them more noticeable for running in the family? Could you sense there was... No, I thought it was more noticeable on World Machine. I thought there was tension then, but I didn't didn't notice as, as much when we were doing Running in the Family. And had your role changed? Because you're still you're listed as engineer, mixer, production assistant. Was it the same for both the albums? Yeah, yeah. That was just Jill trying to get squeeze more points out, get as many credits as possible. (laughs) (laughs) The great thing about Jill was, if you had her on your side, she would do absolutely everything for to get you going. But if you had her on the wrong side, don't get me completely fucked. I walk into the lonely afternoon I feel sad enough 
1988. So 88, you're doing, you're producing Staring at the Sun. So you've made that jump up from engineer. Well, that was just Jill. <laughs> your role was exactly the same for that album as well, but it's just the credit. Yeah, it was, it was a team effort. It was always a team effort. You know, we were all, I was part of the band, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was, there was no difference in the way the, the roles were played. Probably Mark was the boss, really. Yeah, the most forced, yeah. 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 Forceful character. Wally was, and Wally was there and I was there and Mike was there and we all had our say and it was, there was just that little bit of tension between Mark and Phil. So Heaven in My Hands is the opening track. Got the opening track right on this one. It's a brilliant intro. It's a fantastic song with a killer chorus. Uh, did that one jump out of you when you um, heard that track? That's a song that's aged really well. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Heaven in my hands. Heaven in that go? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. We did this in France, Miravel. Oh, nice. Residential studio. It was great. When you're in a lovely location, is it hard to get the band motivated to actually work? No. Nah. Yeah. You never had to be like a phone space. Yeah, it's a good sounding track, isn't it? Brilliant. It's a brilliant song. And this was Alan Murphy on guitar, wasn't it? Yes, yes. The late Alan Murphy. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, fantastic. God, what a great band to work with. I can say lucky to work with people like that. It wasn't always like that, I can tell you. 1989. Usually when I do the research on, on my guests, it's usually an album I discover the first time and there's an album I rediscover. And both of you were in the same year, it was in 89. So there's a certain ratio you produced. Good you know, support. when that comes on in the car, yeah. I think... Honey, oh, that's a good record. Great album. I've, never, I've heard of the band. I've never really listened to their music, and this is the one that yeah. surprised me the most. Yeah, it comes on in the, it's been coming on recently in the car, and I'm thinking, bloody hell, we did a good job on that. That's a really great record. You know? it's one that kind of came and went, I guess, because I'd, I'd never really heard the album before. Yeah, I, I was really quite disappointed nothing came of that. I remember at the time thinking we'd done a, quite a good job, and then... Uh, nothing eventuated from it, but yeah, they were great to work with. Yeah, we really got on well with them. A funny thing is we had one track where um, we needed a, a sample of a snare drum. Uh, I can't remember because it was live drums. But anyway, we we said we decided we're going to put a sample of a snare drum on the snare, on the song. And I said, oh, because I, I wasn't into keeping all their own samples and all that. You know, I just didn't have any of that stuff. They said, oh, we've got one. How about this? We got it running up and running on the track. And I said, yeah, that's a bloody good snare drum sound. He said, oh, yeah, it's one of yours. We nicked it off another song. <laughs> well, anyway. steal from the best, yeah? Do you remember what the song yeah, was? Yeah. That was cool. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which song that was. Yeah, they really good tunes, didn't they? Yeah, they're just it's a very accessible pop album. Yeah. Really, yeah. 
That's the, it's this one. That's the snare. Back to the wall. Back to the wall. Yes, that was my favourite track. Yes, that's the one with my snare drum. They stole off oh, okay. a level forty-two track or something. If you're producing it, you can't sue, really, can you? Because you're <laughs> doing it anyway. So, yeah, it's a smart move on their part. And the one I revisited and rediscovered again was Results, Liza Minnelli. That was a really great album. But there's also a link with a certain ratio because the drummer from... I only discovered this a couple of hours ago. The drummer from a certain ratio did the rap on Twisting My Sobriety. Well, I wasn't aware of that. Maybe I was. I don't remember. That's what I was going to say about Twisted in My Sobriety is that I've been listening to Led Zeppelin when I I recorded, when we recorded that. I put a lot of work into that. Pet Shop Boys just left me to it. And I was determined to make it. Twisted in My Sobriety then, was that Led Zeppelin? No. That's got kind of heavy kind of drum beat to it, isn't it? I must have been a little bit angry when I made this. Gary Moyne was the Fairlight guy and uh, Andy was doing the keyboards. We, we spent a couple of nights getting this thing going and the Pet Shop Boys just left us to it. But that was a great album. Actually, I have to say, if Neil had sung it, we probably would have got a few hits out of that. When I heard the demos, I thought, geez, these are great tunes. Uh, and I thought Neil's singing them They're for Neil, really. Yes, it's a Pet Shop Boys song, yeah. Yeah, they were all petrol, well, apart from the covers. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, Neil Tennant at the time said it was basically a Petrol Boys album with vocals with, by Liza Seam. She was a lovely lady. She's a really lovely lady. He produced Dusty Springfield at the same, in the same year, several tracks with her. So, what was the biggest difference and similarity with working with the two? Uh, Liza just sang them, and Dusty, it was a big, it was a big job. A big, big job. May I mean probably one of my favourite female singers of all all time. I think Dusty, uh, but it was quite hard work. Work with the way she did her vocals. It's bloody hard work. 
Or is she meticulous in terms of meticulous? And she, you know, she sing the first line, then she say, "Oh no, hang on, no, uh, I've got to sing it a slightly different way." Because she she planned how she was going to sing the rest of the song, but that depended on how she'd sing the beginning of the song as right. it went through. You know, it was all planned in her mind. Like we chess. didn't know what the hell was going on. Me and Neil are sitting there going, "Why she stopped? Oh <laughs> fuck, she stopped again." Oh no, we got the third line. She stopped again. <laughs> it took us two days to get the vocal out out of her, especially for that um, scandal thing. You know, the thing has been proved. Yeah, that was big, big job. Yeah. So it's almost like she's a chess player. She's like six moves ahead. So like she moves ahead, and if she didn't yeah. get quite the right nuances in the previous lines, she was she, was, she couldn't. Uh, sing it all the way through and then go and repair bits, you know. In the end, I think we had 20 tracks of her vocal. Wow. We did actually end up having to get her to just sing it all the way through and then we had to go through and choose which were the best lines, which in those days was quite tricky on tape. I mean, in, in Pro Tools, you know, what we use these days is just dead easy. That's it was quite long-winded, but amazing. I mean, such a privilege, another privilege to work with somebody who was an idol of mine. Half the album, not the whole album, with Dusty and like Liza. Was that because it was it took so much longer? I, I think the, didn't the PSBs not do the other half? Wasn't it? No. Um, no. It was Andy did the other half, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was Andy. Yeah. Reputation was the album. Yeah, I think yeah. Andy did the other half. Uh, there's Dan Hartman did three tracks, Andy did one track, and then Paul oh. Leo Duffy did another track. So it's a mixture of different producers, and then... Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I did yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that was good. Uh, but, yeah, but... It was, it was a fantastic good. experience. And, you know, uh, not long after that, not long after that, I moved to Henley from Wimbledon in 93, I think. And I didn't know, but I lived literally around the corner from her all that time until I left for Australia, until she died. Oh, I, right. I didn't know she lived, you know, with a, you know, it was almost a war. She lived if, by herself. And if you'd uh, not I know, I'd known, I would have gone and, you know, seen her. Would she, do you think she'd have been welcoming or would she have been quite private and not? It was a pretty be? sad, she was pretty sad, I think. She had her mental problems. 
I, I think she would have been happy to see me, probably. She would be really happy to see Neil. Did he keep in contact with her, do you know? Neil Tennant. Did he? Dusty's gone. No, but did he while she was still alive? I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah. I know he went to a funeral, didn't he? Uh, He went to the funeral I watched from the street. Oh, so you were there? Yeah, well, I was in Henley. The funeral was down Henley uh, Henley High Street. Yeah, it was way too young, wasn't it? It was really sweet. Amazing singer. Yeah. Amazing voice, yeah. Did you hear, um, going back to Liza Minnelli, did you hear that um, Frank Sinatra... And uh, Sammy I D- met Frank. Oh, you met Frank because there's a, a quote yes. where he said that he he thought Twisted My Sobriety he liked the groove. Oh, did he? Oh, really? That's what he said. Oh, well, that's yes. the one. Because oh, I could have got a Frank Frank Sinatra gig out of that, couldn't yeah. I? I wasn't a big Frank fan, actually. Truthful. Okay, prefer Tony yeah. Bennett. Oh, I love Tony Bennett's voice. I probably preferred Tony Bennett's voice to Frank. But okay. you know who I really liked? Tom Jones. Really? Oh, I think he was, he's fantastic. Well, he's still fantastic. Okay, so what track would you produce of Tom Jones then? What song would you got him well, to the one that Gary and JJ did, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss! Okay, yeah. so we've done the. If I'm going to quickly ask you about McCartney and working on off the ground, because uh, I'm a big yeah. McCartney fan. Um, so, how did you get the opportunity to to work with him to actually produce him? Well, me, me and Wix had produced that. Mick Wix is his musical director, had been for years and years, and we, me and Wixie did Tasman Archer together. You know, Sleeping Satellite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I have to say, probably I was very proud of that in the end. I blame you for the moonlit sky And the dream that died With the eagles flying I blame you for the moonlit nights When I wonder why Are the sea still dry? Don't blame this satellite Actually, can listen to that and not Oh, no, there are a few mistakes. But anyway, I'm alert for those. Put everything into that, actually, that song. Absolutely everything. Because I didn't get the gig in the first place. Uh, I think I think it was Pete Woodruff got the gig. Because I heard the, the demo and I said, I want that. I want to do that track. That's when Annie was managing me. And anyway, she came back a few weeks later and said, no, they've gone with somebody else. I think it was Pete Woodruff. Anyway, about six months later, they came back and said, oh, it didn't quite work out with who we were doing it with. Do you want to have a go? And, that, and I was just, like, obsessed because I knew that was a hit single. Yeah. I was dead sure that was a hit single. I was never so sure in my life. Anyway, Wixie, after we'd had that hit with Tasman, Wixie must have mentioned to McCartney, why don't you give Julian a go? And that's how it all came about. So I went down and saw them, met Paul and Linda, Got on really well, and that's uh, how it all came about. So, when you produced the album, did you produce a whole bunch of different tracks? Or did at what point did you have an album formed in terms of these are the twelve tracks that are going to be the album? Because not until nearly towards the end. So, because there's, there's B sides, like there's an EP with Hope of Deliverance, and I think the three B sides on that. Down, down by the river and all that sort of stuff. Well, on, on that particular single, it's Big Boys Bickering, Kicked Around No More, and Long Leather. Oh, God. Stop, baby. Stay right here. 
three I've tracks. I haven't heard any of those for years. Although they're three fantastic tracks, and I think they should have been on the album. We did 25 tracks all together. Because what happened when we first started off, we did it in the way that I would have done a Tasman Archer record, which was a lot of programming, a lot of computer work, not a lot of live work. And Paul got, got really impatient with that. I mean, we made a great record out of it. I think Bob Krauser mixed it in the end. I can't remember what it's called, and I wish I had a copy of it. I thought it was a great record, but it wasn't what Paul wanted. He wanted the band. This was a chance for his live band to have their moment, you know, on a, on a record. So you're saying you already finished a version of the record? Of one song. There was one song we started. Oh, okay. And it was it was quite, we spent a lot of time doing, you know, computer stuff and sequencing and all that. Paul didn't like, want that. He wanted it all live, you know. Was that song still on the album, but in a different version? No, no. There was a special version of it later on. Because the engineer that I had with me, Bob Krauser, did a mix after we'd finished the album. I Did thought you... it was a great track. changed after that instead of doing 10 or 15 tracks he said oh no let's go in it was set up in the where in the stables across the other side of the yard uh and we'll we'll just record lot, lots of songs live we'll just choose the best out of those whichever one turned out best did that disappoint you that there'd be less actual production yeah it did disappoint me a bit because it wasn't the way i normally would work yeah yeah cause it does sound like it does sound like it's got like a live feel to it and it does sound Kind of not typical of your usual kind of production. Yeah, it threw me a bit, actually. Threw me a bit. Yeah. So, how do you feel about the album now? Oh, it's a lot, you know, now I can appreciate it. It's a couple of tracks I'm not too keen on, but most of them I quite enjoy. Yeah. Peace Golden Earth Girl, I really like. Yeah, I think Golden Earth Girl. Line Dark Open Sea, I liked. Come On People just drives me nuts because I had a fantastic rough mix of that. And I never, I never got back to it. Ugh. What was different? I don't know. Something was different. I never got it again. Uh, really annoyed me. Just so annoying when that happens. So you, you get a rough mix and you're happy with it and then it gets mixed again. And you have to do some overdubs on it and, you know, I can't remember. You know, with Pro Tools, at least it's there. It's just remembered every time you finish working on it. It'd be end of the with day. a tape machine and a mixing desk, it's never there again. That's the just, yeah. It's soul destroying.
Did you ever think of having to like you get a great demo and trying to do the recorded version? You can never recapture the demo. That's something you often well, that's, uses. Yes, there's a lot of that going on, especially with Trevor. Well, the, the video killed the radio star is the one that really drove him nuts. Really, is that a good demo. Him. Yeah, the demo had something special about it. Right. it sounded crap, but it was special. Right. And that's why it took him a year and four or five different versions to get it, you know, many different versions. The My Aetisography Quick Fire Mound. What's the worst mix you ever did? Uh, talk, talk. Which one? Uh, was it a 12-inch mix? No, uh, it was just a mix after they'd left EMI under a cloud. Uh, I just I just loved Talk Talk so much. I thought I've got to do this mix. I want to see what it's like on the on the multi track. Uh, living in another was that? Hang on, I think it was living in another world. I did this mix of it because the record company just wanted to get the. They had a massive row with EMI. Was this mix for a single? Was it an extended mix? I remember it was just for an extra. EMI getting in, milking the, yeah, yeah. milking it, you know. Fucking great record. God. It's a great record, yeah. Color Did you know it? The Colour of Spring is the album it's on. Yeah. Fucking great. Yeah. Anyway, I really, re- re- I really didn't, shouldn't have done it. I really okay. regret doing it. Right. And I got a lot of Talk Talk fans, you know, really angry with me. What a terrible mix and, you know. Sacrilegious, basically, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, song you involved with that should have been a bigger hit. Oh, shit. When you made it, you thought, oh, this is going to be a smash. This is going to be a smash. And it doesn't do anything. You think, why wasn't that a hit? It's- oh, there were many of those. Yeah. <laughs> many of them. I can't remember. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Biggest diva moment witnessed in the studio? You mean diva? What is that? What? Somebody being a diva, somebody like having a strop. Being difficult? Yes. But like a, having a big strop and causing a scene in the studio or just like flouncing out or anything like well, that. Well, there were plenty of those, but they were all all the people who never made it. Okay, yeah, not the big stars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mainly, not the. We didn't have much trouble with the pop stars. They were always happy in themselves, but it was the ones that were trying to get there that had the moments. I mean, there were there were moments, and I just can't just can't think of any at the moment. There might have been a moment of somebody who was going well, but I can't think of any. Biggest professional regret of the 80s? Doing the talk, talk mix. Yeah, <laughs> you've already mentioned that one. Perfect. 
And your best single. Oh no, no, there was oh. death, the professional was definitely uh, the crowd of the house, the Neil Finn. Thing. Oh yes, that's something you didn't do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and missing out on the uh, ordinary world mix—that yes. was yeah. devastating. That would, yeah. I, I, you know, I just knew when I when I got offered it, I thought, can I do this in a weekend? Dare I take the chance? I knew that I could, it could end up in disaster with Paul. So I just, I just didn't do it. Did you like the mix of uh, the single "Ordinary World"? Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, great mix, great song. Couldn't I probably would have got something pretty simple, done something similar, but it would have opened up a new world for me. And yeah. unfortunately, I it would have opened anyway. It doesn't yeah. matter. I do regret it. Could have, would have, should have regret it. Uh, your best. You know, if it had been Trevor, if it had been Trevor asked to do that, mm-hmm. and he was working with McCartney, Trevor would have gone all hell for leather to try and do it. Yeah. To take that chance of pissing off. He wouldn't have cared about pissing yeah, yeah. the other artist off. Yeah. Whether it was Paul McCartney or not, he wouldn't have given a shit. <laughs> he would have wound his way through it. You know what I mean? I wasn't quite as militant as no. that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your best single professional moment of the 80s. Well, it was the 90s with Sleeping Satellite, I think. Yeah, have you not learned? We don't talk about the 90s. Don't exist. Just pretend it's the 80s. There was think of in the ages like that, that. That if I could just freeze one moment. Oh, I, su- I suppose the one, two, and three, the relaxed yeah, two I'm, tribes. And yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. I'm going down on me. That's that would be it. The eternal jukebox. So we have a thing called the eternal jukebox, where if all your music was disintegrated and exist anymore, but you keep three songs, you worked on the eighties for all eternity. What would your three songs be? Probably sleeping satellite. That's nineties. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, leaving Me Now, level 42. Yes, good one. Uh, probably be a lot of level 42 tracks on there. Nick Kershaw would be Nick Kershaw. Hang on, Kim Racing, The Riddle. Know How, okay. which was on The Riddle. Riddle, yeah, interesting choice. Why that one? Oh, lots of Nick. I'd take a lot of Nick Kershaw. I'd take a lot of Nick Kershaw and a lot of Level 42. Uh, I'm sorry, I just can't differentiate. And if you had to pick a Pet Shop Boys song, what would it be? Um, I don't know which the which one I'd choose of the Pet Shop Boys. I don't know. There'd be a couple, but I can't decide which ones. It's over. There's another level. Okay, take it. That's three. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I I was determined to get a third song out of you. Fashion Fever. I love that one. Fashion Fever. That's off uh, Running in the Family, isn't it? Yeah, that was a great track. Okay, and finally, three words to describe your 80s. He's playing it, he's on it. Fucking great track. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your three words? Fucking great track. Describe your age. Great track. That's it. That's yeah. all you need, you know, an, F, uh, an FGT. Oh, hang on. Frankie goes to. Oh, no. Fucking great track. FG. Frankie goes to. So that's your three words to describe your age. Fucking great track. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking great time. Fucking great time, perfect. But hard, hard work. Very, really hard. Wrecked myself. 
That's why I had to have my eight-week eight holiday in 87. Yeah. Oh, you earned it. It okay. was mixed by some other bastard. <laughs> this is the end of the interview. Thank you very much. Uh, so thank you for Julian for the interview. It was great fun, great value, and so much great music as well. He has got a website you can check out. It's uh, morenoise.com. That's M-O-R-E-N-O-I-Z. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed doing this interview. So thanks to Julian. I mentioned ABBA in the interview. We talked about it briefly. And I think I mentioned Summer Night City, which to me is one of ABBA's best songs. And it, and it grinds my gears simply chronic that it's not on ABBA gold. You know, 30 million people have bought this record and don't have this on Abercold yet, yet does your mother know it's on there which is a bit shit and Summer Night City is a masterpiece but that's not why I bring it up I bring it up because so what we've been talked about is are they saying walking in the moonlight or fucking in the moonlight in the song now you hear this that is clearly walking in the moonlight but if you listen to the very last time it is sung on the fade out To me, that is fucking in the moonlight. Listen again. That's fucking in the moonlight, right? Anyway, Summer Night City is easily as good as Dancing Queen and when it takes it all. But I digress. So to um, finish with, uh, so many great songs and records that Julian was involved in in the 80s, but this is, this is quite majestic. This is from Liza Minnelli's Results album, produced by Julian with the Pet Shop Boys and a cover of a track from their first album, and in my opinion, their best album, Please. This is Tonight Is Forever. Tell me now you don't disagree. To all for the beat. I may be wrong, I may be right. Money short, time is tight. Don't even think about those bills. Don't pay the price. We never will We're out again Another night We'll never have enough It could be like this forever If we fall in love Tonight is forever Tell me now you don't 
Making mistakes is a part of life's imperfections, born of the years. Is it so wrong to be human after all? That should have a question mark after it. Oh, bullshit.